Welcome to the Bible teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church, where our desire is to honor God by faithful obedience to His Word. If you want to understand the Bible better, please continue to listen as our Bible teacher explains and applies the biblical text one verse at a time. Also, you can reach us with questions or for more teaching audio and print material at our website, www.fbcaa.org. You can watch our services at fbcaa.org live or on YouTube. We thank you for listening and pray that you will be edified. Join us now as we open God's Word. All right, welcome everybody to our, our Bible study tonight. Uh, tonight is, what, February 8th, Wednesday night Bible study. We've had a good week of prayer so far, three nights of prayer behind us, two more to come. <coughs> Excuse my voice. It's still uh, congestion from that prior cold uh, that I've had. You know, I struggle with that sometimes, but uh, we're going to persevere through it anyway. And uh, probably doesn't help that we had a nice big meal beforehand uh, just now, but uh, I'm never one to shy away from food, so we enjoyed that. We're in Matthew chapter 28 tonight, the first eight verses, Matthew chapter 28. We're getting close to the end of the exposition That is the explanation and application of the book of the Gospel of Matthew with our aim being that you would understand and obey the Word of God which is explained and applied. That's what expositional ministry is all about. And we come to Matthew 28 which is the announcement, at least in the first few verses, the announcement of the resurrection. Now the resurrection occurred, but this is the announcement of that resurrection. And so Matthew, the gospel writer, explains what happened after the burial of Jesus. Actually, after the burial, we saw some of that in the end of chapter 27 with Pilate setting a guard and uh, the Pharisees not wanting the uh, third day resurrection to occur as had been predicted. They said, uh, we remember that, that that deceiver, they're referring to Jesus, they're the deceivers, but they called him that. After three days, he said, I will rise. So they wanted the tomb to be made secure. Now for us today, um, I do encourage you, if you have your Bible, to follow along in Matthew 28. But today, two months henceforward from tomorrow is April 9th. April 9th is Easter. Two weeks from today is Easter. But Today in our text, we're already at the resurrection account of the Lord, which is the very foundation of our Christian faith. Without the resurrection of Christ, the whole thing falls apart, and there is no faith at all. Now, the text doesn't give a meaning or or explanation for the uh, resurrection, you know, a, a theology of it. You know what I mean by that? Like, it just says it happened. I'm going to put in a few little things of application, or at least one big one, uh, by the end of the message on it, but Paul would tell us later about the resurrection, how it seals our justification, how uh, Peter said death couldn't hold him, and these sorts of things. But for now, we're just talking about the event really itself. And so let's read through it and see what we can glean from this portion of Scripture. Matthew 28, verse number 1. Now after the Sabbath, as the first day of the week began to dawn, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, 
For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat on it. His countenance was like lightning and his clothing as white as snow. And the guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. But the angel answered and said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen, as he said, Come, see the place where the Lord lay. And go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead, and indeed he is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. So they went out quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to bring his disciples' word. <clears throat> now, just we'll warm up here a little bit, okay? So after the Sabbath, it says in verse 1 of chapter 28, Saturday is past. The first day of the week has begun to dawn. The first day technically started when? <clears throat> Saturday night, as we would call it. So the evening before. So we're some hours into the first day of the week as they would consider it. But the dawning part of the day was early Sunday morning. <clears throat> it says, as the first day of the week began to dawn, it had already darkened and spent the whole night in darkness and then opened up with light. For the ladies coming to visit the Lord's tomb, this was the first opportunity they had to visit after the burial because right after the burial began the Sabbath, which was a high day, a high Sabbath, because of the Passover. It was an important Sabbath day, more, more kind of marked out specially than the other Sabbath days, and they had to cease work on that Sabbath. They could not work. <clears throat> they could not uh, carry spices and do all of that. Now, obviously, I would imagine you could join them in thinking how, how much of an itch they had to get back to the tomb to anoint properly the Lord's body. Have you ever had the feeling like, I left something undone and I have to go finish it right now? Like, I got to do it before I go to bed. Or I've got to do it, you know, before the day is out. Well, there's not much more of an unfinished feeling than we didn't properly bury the guy. He needs to be properly anointed, embalmed, if you will, not embalmed like the way we do it, but, you know, properly done. And uh, they would have that unfinished feeling. This is a very special person to them. They knew he was the Son of God. He deserved the richest of burials, uh, but he was just kind of hastily, hey, thank you, dear. Don't worry, you haven't appeared on the live stream. Nobody has seen you. Um, although, as, as uh, Dr. McCune would say, uh, when he would occasionally have a woman in his theology class, he would uh, talk, address her as the uh, rose among the thorns. <laughs> that made us guys feel really good, you know. But, uh, no, the... Uh, the fairer of the two sexes uh, could sanctify the presence of the classroom a little bit. But in any case, um, <clears throat> they wanted to do that for him who deserved uh, a proper burial. Now, this timing 
after the Sabbath, when the resurrection occurred, is why churches meet on the morning of the first day of the week. I don't know how many times we have to say this until people will believe it or understand it, but we're celebrating the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We're, we're not worshiping on the Jewish Sabbath. Okay? We're not worshiping on the seventh day. There is no such thing as a Christian Sabbath, as if it's been moved. There's no instruction in the Bible that shifts the Sabbath from Saturday to Sunday. It just doesn't exist. And so you can see the power of culture, the, the church culture, the Reformed culture that got so ingrained, and they talk about Christian Sabbath, and Sunday is the Sabbath, and you have to rest on the Sabbath, and they mean Sunday. That's not true. That's just not Bible, okay? It's good to take a day of rest in seven. That's, there's no question about that. We need rest. And there's, it's certainly good to take a day to worship. God deserves more than a day. Good grief, we say. He, he deserves every day, right, the whole week. But certainly we set aside some time to worship the Lord one day a week. We worship on the Lord's day. With our Seventh-day Adventist friends, they, by the way, are hard-nosed about worshiping on, remember, Saturday. <clears throat> they don't want to worship on Sunday. They hold that the law is required for their sanctification. That's against the whole argument of the book of Galatians, by the way. You cannot be sanctified by law. I can't set a rule in front of you and say, thou shalt not do fill in the blank, whatever is your challenge. And then suddenly you're like, oh, wow, it's working. The law is working. It's changing me. It doesn't do that. The Spirit of God changes us, causes us to want to obey God, but not, not uh, by just laying down the law. So we share with them passages like Acts 20, verse 7. Paul spoke to the church in um, Troas, was it Troas, uh, until midnight on the first day of the week. Now, that's the time, remember, when that young man fell down and probably seemed like broke his neck or cracked his skull open or whatever from the third loft, uh, falling asleep in the late evening. 1 Corinthians 16.2, on the first day of the week, you come together and you gather the finances that you're going to make this special offering with. Revelation 1.10, the Apostle John is in the Spirit on the Lord's day when he received the book of Revelation. That was a Sunday experience for John. The whole book of Revelation was communicated to him in that time. So they all speak of the first day of the week, which came to be known as the Lord's Day. That's why we worship then, because as the first day of the week began to dawn, the Lord was raised from the dead. Now, we've talk, we're talking about the announcement of the resurrection. So the timing, first day of the week, early in the morning. The recipients of this announcement are two women, Mary Magdalene, and the other Mary who came to see the tomb. Now, Mary Magdalene, who is Mary Magdalene? Probably people today know more about Mary Magdalene from the popular movies. Um, I don't know, what are the, all the movies about the Lord, you know, and the chosen these days, and maybe the passion before, I don't even know if she appeared in there, and, and other ones, but um, what does the Bible say? Well, in Luke chapter 8, verse 2, and Mark 16, it comments that she had been demon-possessed. It says that she had been possessed. <clears throat> Let me just read it, since it's not uh, maybe as well-known or the way she's portrayed uh, in the common. 
understanding. Luke 8, chapter 2 says, And certain women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities, Mary called Magdalene, out of whom had come seven demons. I don't know how they know how many, except the Lord told them, because the Lord would know. He would recognize it. But she's presented as a direct beneficiary of the Lord's healing ministry. Some were healed by the Lord. They walked away. You remember the uh, ten lepers? Nine of them walked away. Some who were healed by the Lord came back and said thanks. And then there were some who were healed by the Lord, like Mary Magdalene, who followed him and served him. I think you know which way you should go. (laughs) If you've been saved by the Lord, don't walk away. Don't just say thanks and go on with your life, but serve him, worship him. That's what Mary Magdalene did. She came, went and ministered to him out of, out of her time. I mean, you think about it. It's, it's easy to read over this, but guys, gals, ladies and gentlemen, these are the kind of people who are trafficked people. These are the kind of people who have mental illness today, the kind of people who are down and out. The Lord healed this woman, and she became a servant of the Lord. We might look at somebody like that and say, write them off, you know, depreciation, forget it. That's not how the Lord looked at that situation. He healed her, and she became a great servant of the Lord. In fact, she's the first one at the tomb on Sunday morning. The other one was the other Mary, She's identified as the mother of James and Joseph. And Mark 15, I don't have time to go there this evening, identifies her as the mother of James. We said she's the mother of James, but she's the mother of James the Less. Okay, James the Less. He was one of the 12 apostles selected by the Lord. Remember, he selected Simon. Peter. He selected uh, James, the son of Zebedee, and James's brother. Remember his name? John. They were the sons of Zebedee, the Boanerges. Remember what that means? No? Sons of Thunder. Guys, this was their nickname. You ever had a nickname in school or whatever? This was their nickname. They were a little bit, um, uh, I don't know, brash, you might say. Lord, we saw this guy doesn't follow after us. Should we tell him to stop? Or, Lord, they're not responding to you. Should we call down fire from heaven and burn them up? Okay, so they had some issues. Uh, John or uh, Jesus selected Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew. Uh, Matthew is also called what? Do you remember? The tax collector, Levi. Then there was Thomas. You remember Thomas? Doubting Thomas. Then there was James, the son of Alphaeus, who we identify as James the Less. I think less probably means younger. Okay, James the Less. He's the younger of the James. The, the other one, the son of Zebedee, was a little older perhaps. I don't think it talks about them being, you know, one being greater and one being dumber or less honorable or something like that. But in any case... Um, So this Alphaeus was married to the other Mary, 
So Mary and Alphaeus had a son named James the Less, James the son of Alphaeus, James the Younger. And then the Lord picked three others. One was called Thaddeus, or some, uh, sometimes his name was called Judas, not Iscariot. And then there was Simon the Canaanite, who was also Simon the Zealot. And then there was Judas Iscariot, the betrayer. All right, hang with me now. Uh, good application coming up here. Now, Matthew reports that they came to see the tomb. In verse number 1, they came to see the tomb. Now, Matthew doesn't tell the whole story, but in Mark it tells us that they bought, they bought with money spices that they could come and use to anoint the body of the Lord. That's in Mark 16 and Luke 24, okay? So they bought spices to do that. Evidently, early that morning, they went to some market someplace and they found spices that they could use for a burial anointing and they came to do that, to see the tomb and to do that. Now, when they were on their way, it seems, behold, there was a great earthquake, okay? The angels arrived right around the time that the women did. Now, it doesn't tell us here if it was right before or during or after their arrival, and that's not really the important point. We can figure out by harmonizing all the passages that it happened, you know, it all happened early in the morning. When the women arrived, the stone had, I think, just been removed, okay? Now, when we read this, let me caution you about how we read in English. When it says, and behold, there was a great earth, I'm sorry, back up one at the end of verse 1, and the other Mary, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, came to see the tomb. Now, when we read that, we probably think they came to see the tomb, meaning they're there, they're standing nose to nose with this rock, and they're wondering when it's going to roll away. The verb and the idea here in the word to, to come or they came does not necessarily mean that they had arrived. The verb is they went. They went on the way. They're there going to the tomb. And Matthew is not obligated to write the events in order. But actually, I think he does in the sense that he says, okay, they're on their way to the tomb. As they're doing that, I mean, how do you write a story where there are multiple things happening at one time? An angel's coming down from heaven. An earthquake happens. They're on their way to the tomb. And just as they're, you know, within the final stretch of distance to get there, this angel comes and the earthquake and he moves the, to- the door of the tomb, the rock, out of the way so that they come. Because they were, in the other Gospels, it says, hey, we're wondering, who- who's going to remove the stone for us? Like Maybe we've got to ask the soldiers to do this so that we can get in there, get special permission. They weren't allowed to open it, by the way. It was sealed shut. I mean, nobody gets in. Uh, how are we going to do this? Uh, and uh, the Lord solved <clears throat> that problem. So... They were traveling in that direction. They did eventually arrive, but the earthquake, I think, could have happened as they made their final approach to that destination. The point is that with the angelic arrival came a large earthquake which dislodged the stone from the entryway to the tomb. That was not kind of the natural course of events. The the door was just supposed to stay there, the rock, the boulder, whatever it was, the, the, the circular stone that maybe rolled in a track like you see that they cleverly you know, put there <clears throat> to open it to put somebody else in their own little niche. Probably several guys would have to come and roll that stone out of the way, and they'd get and do their stuff, and then they'd you know, maybe pull a, 
chalk out of the thing and let it roll back into place. But uh, the angel was the agent who caused the shaking. And uh, his purpose was to open the entry to the tomb. He sat on the stone. Did you notice that? It says he descended, he came and rolled back the stone from the door, and then it says he sat on it. What does that tell you? I mean, it just tells you that he sat on it, but it's almost like he's, he's the boss of that stone. I'm just using this as my resting place, you know. I just moved this big old thing, and now I'm sitting on it. It's mine. I'm in charge. I have complete power over this stone. And while he was sitting there, he couldn't help but shine because he was an angel, uh, brilliant and white um, glory, just emitting like lightning from his body, uh, his clothing. And this matches how angels often appear in the Bible, just with a great glow about them. Now, because of his, of his presence, this angel, what happened to the guards? Well, they were trembling with fear. This is a knee-knocking, incapacitating kind of fear that happens to the body in awful circumstances. Has anybody ever had that kind of fear in their life? I have not, although some of us perhaps have had almost something like that when we have a night terror. Have you ever had one of those, a nightmare? Terrible thing to have, I'll tell you, uh, and to see your children have as well. They were unable to maintain their composure and probably fell down, unable to stand their guard. Now, I, I took this, this is just a little side trail here, but I thought of it this way. Um, how insignificant are the schemes of man when it comes to the power of God? Here are these guys, Pilate, the soldiers, the Pharisees, have sealed the stone. Okay, they put a, a pipsqueak little uh, seal on their wax seal or something like that with the mark of a ring of the, of the governor. And they stand four guards around there like they've got it all under control. Compared to the power of God, their power is pathetic, completely inadequate when confronted with the power of the divine being sending an angel to open this tomb. And I likened it to like this. You know, the, the, think of a power, the power of a gasoline engine. Now, you can make gasoline engines pretty powerful, right? You've heard of cars that have four, five, six, seven hundred horsepower, and you're like, well, that'd be cool. I'd love one of those. Yeah, well, where would you drive it? I mean, you know, you could never take advantage of all that power. But compare the power of a gasoline engine to the power of a nuclear bomb. It's a totally different thing. It's totally, uh, the nuclear bomb is so, more, so much more sophisticated and advanced and powerful. It's orders of magnitude more powerful than a gasoline-powered engine. In the same way, God's power is like that compared to man's power. You know, we have nuclear power. God has God nuclear power. <laughs> he has way bigger power than we have. Now, notice that in our reading, we didn't see one event occur. One of the event, the key event we did not see occur was the Lord 
exiting the tomb, right? From what we can ascertain from all the texts that record the events, his exit preceded the removal of the stone. He did not need a stone moved out of his way. One who rises from the dead in a glorified body does not need the material help of an angel or of people to remove a stone out of his way. And you know, we don't see Jesus, we, we don't hear a story of, of Jesus like minor, a miner trapped underground in a mine tapping out Morse code on the other side of that stone saying, let me out. Here's what you would hear. S-O-S. That's Morse code for S-O-S. He didn't do that. He didn't need that. He's not in there asking to be let out, please, because the power of the resurrection is such that it's way beyond any need like that. Now, here's the application. You remember that the Apostle Paul prayed in Ephesians chapter 1 that we would know the power of that resurrection at work in our lives. That same power, he prayed, that you would know that power that raised Christ up from the dead is operational in your life. So you have a difficulty in your life. Yep. Don't we all? Do you have to think that you have some little tiny, you know, electric engine or that you're behind the, the blockade that's stopping you from living for the Lord? You have the power of God at your disposal, okay? It's not SOS. It's God's power at work in you. And so I trust that you have that settled in your heart, that when you're facing trials, difficulties, temptations, all the things that life throws at you, you have God's power. You have a sanctification issue you can't overcome, some challenge, some temptation, some addiction, uh, some attitude problem that you can't seem to get over and live right. Remember the resurrection power that's available. That raised Christ up from the dead. Now, we close with a few more thoughts. The angel's message in verses 5 through 7. The angel answered and said to the women, Do not be afraid. Well, that's a good word. Hundreds of times there are hundreds of verses in the Bible that talk about not being afraid in various forms. I was trying to find all the ones that angels spoke, but I couldn't. Couldn't quite narrow down the search. There's just too many. But he says, do not be afraid. The women would likely share the same fear that the soldiers had, wouldn't you think? Why would they be exempt from it? So this reassurance would help them. Um, You know, God knows that we're dust. He remembers our frame, that we are dust. So don't be afraid, okay? We are weak, including in our emotional state, even the most stoic strongest among us, has emotions that are difficult at times. Now, the angel already knew what they were looking for. I know that you seek Jesus who is crucified. Okay? Wrong address. Okay? You're at the wrong place. He's not here. He's risen. 
The angel is entirely knowledgeable about the situation that they had faced. He knew they want what they wanted before they even arrived there. God had sent this angel on a mission, revealed that information to this angel, so that he could guide the perplexed women and disciples, and I think as well to dumbfound the soldiers, to just set them aside. Here's the news. He's not here. He's not here. That's what the angel said. He's not here. Why was he not there? You know, one of the ladies in, in a, a, another gospel thought she saw the gardener and said, if, look, if you've, sir, if you've moved him, tell me where. I'll go and take him and get him back to where he needs to be. Uh, maybe he had been stolen. Maybe the Romans had moved the body. Maybe the Pharisees had come and taken it. Maybe something else happened to it. But that wasn't the case. The angel said he has risen from the dead. None of the aforementioned explanations, fears were correct. The fact is that he was now alive. No human was involved in his disappearance from the tomb. An angel, not even an angel in fact, an angel from God confirmed this word, said, hey, he's not here, he's risen. Now, of course, the skeptic among us, the skeptic of is going to say, well, there really was no angel. Yeah, probably the women were full of wishful thinking. They were hallucinating. They uh, had strong hopes that Jesus had not really died or that he had come back to life. And in fact, the disciples even thought, remember when the ladies went and told them at first, the disciples thought they were telling them idle tales, like you're making stuff up, girls. You can't do that. But collectively, altogether, they did eventually come to the realization that, yes, the tomb is empty. They went to see that. John went there. Peter went there. They all saw eventually, I think, or many of them saw firsthand that the tomb was empty. I can't imagine that they didn't go back in subsequent days and look and see where he was in the grave cloths and all of that sort of stuff. They saw him alive after he raised from the dead, and he gave them many infallible proofs. You know what we call those? Uh, Proof of life. Proof of life. You know what they're doing now in some of those areas in Turkey? They're probably sending those little small cameras on a, on a, on a, a cable and sending them into these places and looking to see if people are alive. They want proof of life before they start digging in this place or that place. So They're going to go places where there are people that need their help. Proof of life. Jesus gave proof of life infallibly over 40 days, many, many times. Now, the angel goes on and says, he's not here, he's risen, as he said. Now, last time we went over the whole list of times that the Lord promised that he would rise from the dead on the third day. For example, the sign of the prophet Jonah. As Jonah was in the heart of the the belly of the fish, so the Son of Man will be in the heart of the earth. Three days, three nights. And we saw more than a dozen passages where the Lord Jesus said that. And then the angel said this, Come, see the place where the Lord lay. I put in quotes in my notes just to paraphrase. You know, see for yourself. He's not here. Uh, There's no hiding anything here. The, The eyewitnesses were invited right in. Of course, you cannot see because you're not, you weren't alive at that time and in that place. But you can believe reliable, repeated eyewitness accounts. 
by the women, by the angel, by the other disciples recorded in the Bible, reinforced by the lives and martyrdom of the disciples, evidenced by the radical transformation of the lives of Christians and the impact of Christianity on the world, all prove the legitimacy of the resurrection of Jesus. No man would have willingly died for something he knew was a lie. If the 12 disciples, 11 disciples plus Paul knew that the resurrection was false, why would they go ahead and die for that belief? They didn't. They didn't die in vain. They knew what they had seen and knew what they believed and knew whom, knew whom they had believed. The angel told them to go and tell other disciples and to do so quickly. Why? They had suffered in grief long enough. Friday, Thursday night, or into Friday, all day Friday, all day Saturday, losing sleep, probably multiple nights. They haven't been able to rest. They didn't rest well on Thursday night into Friday because they were with the Lord in the Garden of Gethsemane, right? Friday all day, emotionally exhausting. They couldn't rest. It was terrible. In fear of their lives, grief. The, the angel tells them, tells the ladies, go and tell. Go and tell because they need to know the good news. Also, the, mess, the angel had a message for the disciples. And see, it says in verse number seven in the middle there, he is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. It's, it's like, look, I'm telling you. Have you ever heard somebody say that? Look, I'm telling you. That's what the angel's saying. Behold, I'm telling you. This is the truth. That's my paraphrase of what the Lord had said. So what did the women do? Well, they did what we should do. They went out quickly and told people that Jesus was alive, that uh, he had conquered death. That great thing that we fear, all of us fear, death. We don't want to die. We don't know what's going to happen after death. The Lord had conquered that. And so they went out quickly. They went out with a mixture of two emotions. Do you notice those emotions? Fear and joy. How do you have those together? Well, maybe you can imagine. It's kind of hard to imagine the, the, the juxtaposition of both fear and joy, but, you know, you've, you've said it. I'm sad, but I'm not sad, right? I'm sad the person has passed away, you know, but... They were 95 years old, and it was just kind of hard for them, and it's better for them to be with the Lord. So I'm sad, but I'm not sad. You, you mix those. You have that all the time. So they had it, this combination of fear and joy, and I'm sure you can try to imagine that. And then they went to tell the disciples and brought them word. There was no more important thing for them to do at this time than that, was there? They didn't have to go buy more spices. They didn't have to do any body anointing. Or burial. They didn't have to go shopping. They didn't have to do their chores. They had one job, and that was to tell that Jesus had risen from the dead. The glorious truth of the resurrection of Jesus had to be told. That was the message of the angel at the announcement of the resurrection. Go and tell them and notice the power that brought Jesus back from the dead. Let us pray. Father, thank you for the privilege we've had tonight to look in a, the Word for a few minutes and to see some of these truths and applications from it may it encourage us that as Christians we have been brought up to new life in Christ and that power of the resurrection operates still in us 
to continue to sustain our lives, to keep us, and to sanctify us, and purify us, to make us uh, ready for heaven. May it have its full and complete work in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. For those viewing online, thank you for participating with us. For those uh, here gathered, trust you'll be able to have a little fellowship with each other before you depart. And thank you for kindly joining us tonight. May God bless you and keep you. Good night.